This is Our American Stories, and for the entire show, we celebrate Father's Day. And we go back in the files, some old stuff we bring back, and some new stuff. And we're going to start with a eulogy. And we love eulogies here on Our American Stories, because it's when people talk about their loved one in the most intimate way. There are many obituaries, but written not by some writer in some newspaper, but by that closest loved one. And this one was written by Tony Dolan. And you don't know his name, but you know his work. He's the guy who wrote the Tear Down This Wall speech for Ronald Reagan. And he wrote this eulogy to his father, Joe, on February 12th, 2009. I wrote about it in National Review, and it got shared with so many people that we called up Tony and said, Tony, would you record this? It's all these years later, but my goodness, I know how close you are to his dad, and I know that on occasions like this when he's not here, well, you got to do what you got to do, and you got to remember him. And what better way to do it, Alex? It took Tony over two weeks just to mentally prepare for this. I wanted to record it sooner, and it just took him that long to be able to deliver this touching. Even all, like you were saying, Lee, all these years later, it still hits Tony in that deep way. No, no doubt. It did. My mom passed a few years ago, and I think only now am I coming to terms with it. And it's every Mother's Day, and it's every Christmas that it really hits me. So all of you who've lost dads, dads who were close, and you know what? Even dads who weren't, and you never reconciled. Let's take a listen. To Tony Dolan's eulogy, here's how it started off. My father was generous all his life, and the facts speak to it. In the early 50s, when we lived in Norwalk, even with a young family and at a critical moment in his career, he headed up a fund drive for a new St. Mary's school. It's still there, still being used. And then there was his work at St. Vincent's Hospital Foundation, about his two colleagues, Jim Jolly of the phone company and John Sullivan, Connecticut's Mr. Democrat, and about their work, the word you heard most often was legendary. Part of the legend, of course, was their age. They were elderly and impressive and also very hard of hearing. The head of their office, Ron Bianchi, said he would have had what he thought a very successful meeting in which he conveyed the administrators and his views about what the foundation should do. And then out in the hallway afterwards, he would hear loud voices. Joe, did you hear what Ron said? John Sullivan would ask Joe Dolan. No, Joe Dolan would answer. Maybe Jim did. Jim, did you hear what Ron said? Jim Jolly would be asked. And Jim would answer, what was that again? How much my father thought of Jim and John and Ron and everybody at the foundation and Mike Daly Fairfield's Medal of Honor winner, how close they all were in those last years. You know, meeting anyone from St. Vincent's was always informative for Joe Dolan's children. Everyone had a story about him, often an amusing one. So many of you at the hospital were special to him, and while I want all of you to know how much he cared for you and how grateful he and his family were that you were in his life, you should know, too, that right to the end he was the same, by which I mean the jokes, especially with the nurses and doctors, even on the night he died. Even on the night he died. And let's continue. Again, this is Tony Dolan's eulogy to his father, Joe Dolan. And this is back in 2009. And again, as Alex had pointed out, it took him a couple of weeks just to get it together enough to record this all these years later. First, let me say that until two weeks ago, my father had been doing well, going to church every day. But that after his Christmas Eve fall, we were in and out of hospitals. In one emergency room, the 23-year-old nurse was impressed to have a patient just one short year of a century old. 
my father used is a material. It will sound familiar to some of you. He would be perfectly willing to run off with her, he said, as long as he could be sure she had a lot of money and could take care of him in his old age. A doctor asked him, Mr. Dolan, is there anything I can do for you? How about a million bucks, came the response, the irony. The joke, of course, was that beyond a certain point, money never much mattered to him, except to the extent it helped others. And that was the thing about Joe Dolan and his friends Jim Jolly and John Sullivan, the charm and grace and determination of those three old smoothies as they raised millions to make life better for so many people. Their pictures are in the hospital lobby, quite a tribute and fitting. Yet for all the fundraising my father did and for all the fun he had, some from the hospital remember him for something else. Let me first pause, though, and tell you this. As he got older and we walked together, I would sometimes have to slow down so he could keep up. I am not the first son who has had that experience, but I doubt anyone else ever reflected more on the irony of having to wait for someone who so many times growing up had waited for me kindly, affectionately. Yet, however, things changed in a physical or ambulatory way, as over the years a once superb athlete like my father lost a step or two. Not much else did. It's a wonderful thing to say about a parent. I think my sister Maisel and my brother Terry thought so too. I mean that we were always learning from him. Right to the end, I always felt I was trying to catch up and that he was there waiting for me, kindly, affectionately. He was there waiting for me, kindly and affectionately. And so if you're a father listening to this, take heed, learn, listen to the son's affection. And when we come back, we'll hear more from Tony Dolan's remarkable eulogy. Again, he was Ronald Reagan's chief speechwriter for eight years. And this was his best ever. And again, this was the eulogy he delivered when his father was buried. And again, his dad, Joe, died on February 12th, 2009. Not a famous man. But my goodness, in that neighborhood, in Hartford, Connecticut, at St. Vincent's, famous indeed for his generosity, for his life, a life so well lived. And by the way, we're not going to have all rosy Father's Day stories here, because my goodness, for everyone who had a father like Tony Dolan had, there there are many of you who had just really terrible dads, or absent dads, or cruel and mean ones. And we'll get into some of those stories too. We don't just put on the rose the old rose-colored glasses here in Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and when we come back, more from Tony Dolan eulogizing his father, Joe, who passed on February 12th, 
our American stories and it's Father's Day being celebrated for two hours here on this show. Good fathers, bad fathers, and for all of you whose real fathers weren't your actual fathers, and that includes stepfathers and sometimes mentors who step in, a grandfather who steps in when a dad just takes off or a dad dies. I mean, every and all of the above, we want to cover as much as we can today, celebrate the good and sometimes the bad as it relates to fathers. And we're going to pick up now with Tony Dolan, his eulogy to his father, Joe, on February 12th, 2009. And again, Ronald Reagan was indebted to this man because he wrote Reagan speeches for eight years, including the Tear Down This Wall speech, one of the greats of all time. And let's pick it up where Tony Dolan left off. The earliest lessons remain the most vivid. Do you recall as a child the confusion caused by the sight of someone who is blind or in a wheelchair or has some other conspicuous disability or hardship in asking about it, my father would explain. Then the words would follow that he always used as a coda to his description of someone else's troubles, the poor fellow or the poor girl. The way he said it, the way he made it sound, always for me, all the pathos, the compassion, the feeling humans are capable of in facing our calamitous lives were there in those words. I hear the same words even today and at the sight of suffering I hear again my father's voice and I try to catch up. Which is what I mean by his other contribution, the other stories from St. Vincent's. People would tell us that while trying to deal with a relative's illness or their own and maybe anxiously waiting for word from the doctors, This nice man would come along and talk and listen, and just when they needed it most was touchingly thoughtful. They would always mention how much easier his kindness in the parking passes he always carried made such difficult moments. I wish you could have heard them, though. So much was in their voices. Always it made me think I had much catching up to do. Full disclosure, though, about Joe Dolan means revealing that in one way he was a great trial to his wife and children. Because while my father would greatly inconvenience himself in any noble cause, he also had no compunction about doing that to us. Through six decades of charitable activities, my mother was continually surprised by the causes she found out she had volunteered for, the meetings she had found out she was going to, and the people she found out were coming to her house. Sometimes she would lecture him about it, never with much success. His kids... Too. We paid the price. First, though, I have to explain this. Some of you may know that my father was expansive about his children. When I went to work in Washington, he pretty much figured that his 33-year-old son was running things down there at the White House with some of Ronald Reagan's advice now and then. Now and then. And you're hearing the humor, the humor that the dad passed along to the son. What a story. Again, Tony Dolan eulogizing his father, Joe, February 12, 2009. Let's continue. One time we were out by the Rose Garden, and I was showing him around. 
as most of you know, golf was a priority with him, and so I made the mistake of pointing out where Ike used to have his putting tee. This called for a closer look, and figuring he had a son in high places, and before I could stop him, he set right off across the garden, triggering every sensor and alarm around. As the Secret Service came pouring out of doorways, I smiled wanly, explained, and tried to salvage my suddenly endangered new career. My mother, by the way, gave him another lecture. He didn't get the point of that one either. Anyway, the next lecture he didn't get the point of was about his dragooning me into do-goodism. In the 80s, Joe Dolan decided the White House mess was really a sort of branch office, or at least a travel and resource center of the St. Vincent's Hospital Foundation. Sometimes I really didn't know whether my job was getting the speeches ready for the next Gorbachev summit or taking hospital staff, donors, and friends to lunch. One week I had 18 people in four different groups. But all this goes back to what I was saying about walking with my father. I used to think that what was important about those years was being with President Reagan. At moments like Evil Empire, or Mr. Gorbachev tear down the wall. But my father already knew that just as important was anything done to help St. Vincent's. I know it now. But you see what I mean about taking a while to catch up to him? And Tony Dolan, well, there's nothing more to do but to continue listening to this fantastic eulogy. In his business life, he had been no different. People who worked for him at Sears, he was manager at stores throughout New England, or at Warnico, told us how good he had been to them. And he was ahead of his time, too. Back in the late 50s, early 60s, he was getting awards from the NAACP. When I asked him about it, he said he was puzzled. All I tried to do was to be fair to people, he said. Though even those who worked for him kidded him, he was originally from Boston. By the way, a slashing fullback, Boston Latin's yearbook said. He studied classics and German at Boston College and been offered a teaching fellowship at the University of Heidelberg, but somehow ended up in retail. So he found life hard in southern Connecticut. He had kept his allegiance to the Red Sox, and the Yankees were there. And his cross. When he was promoted to the Bridgeport Sears, the Norwalk store's display artist did a wonderful sketch of him with a dollar in his pocket and the words, It's not that I need the money, it's just closer to Boston. He took a lot of that same kidding at his club, Brooklawn, though there he was also respected for his prowess at a game that frustrated so many others. At 77, he was Brooklawn's senior flight champion, and even after that, he played a great game for many years, and the golf magazines wrote about him shooting his age or under. Some of those he played with said they had a hard time explaining to their friends and family how they lost that morning's game to a 90-year-old. It would be tough to explain. And I love the fact that he was so humble. You know, winning that NAACP award ended up being a big deal. He was fighting some of the great racial segregation in the North. Not written about much. Northerners like to write about racial injustice in the South as if it didn't occur there. And what does his dad say? All I tried to do was be fair to people. That's it. Let's hear some more from Tony Dolan. Some think uh, country clubs are snobbish. My father's friends were self-made. He was close to so many of them, and they to him, they looked out for each other. They were the best of their kind. It was a privilege to see such wonderful fellowship. He owed Brooklawn, too, for happiness, the bliss he found out on the course and sometimes when you go by think of them say a prayer if you can 
On his 90th birthday, the club and Ralph Lestocco gave him a party. And then, and most of all, just a month before my mother died, a storybook finished for them that my sister and I got to see a dinner at Brooklawn in Joe Dolan's honor. Hundreds of people seated at tables along the patio on a Connecticut summer night. As darkness came, they asked him to make a long 12-foot putt. Under a strong spotlight, the 96-year-old gave it his valiant try. No, he, he sunk it. And the cheering, which could be heard down at Jennings Beach, may have done structural damage to the clubhouse roof. You would think he had won the Masters. I was surprised at the shot. My mother wasn't. Joe was always doing things like that, she said. Her hero won last time. Not long after that, when I woke him up one morning with the news she had died and I took him back to the hospital, he kept saying it. Oh, the poor girl. The poor girl. It was how he saw her, a 90-year-old woman and his wife of 65 years, still just the girl he noticed on a street in North Adams, finagled an introduction, proposed a marriage, and created a life with her. More exactly, a way of life. The pagan Joe subculture was one whose beneficent influence their children are grateful for every day, as are so many others. As are so many others. And... What a life he created. You can hear it in the son's voice. And again, when Tony was asked to record this eulogy, which he gave all these years back in 2009, it took him a couple of weeks to get it together emotionally to do it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Father's Day for the show. When we come back, the closing of this remarkable piece of writing by Tony Dolan, celebrating his father, Joe, and many more clips from famous and not so famous people about their good dads and their not so good dads and the folks who played the role of dads more after these messages school one day with a shiner on my eye Fighting was against the rules and it didn't matter why When dad got home I told that story just like I'd rehearsed Then stood there on those trembling knees and waited for the worst And he said let me tell you a secret about a father's love secret that my daddy said was just between us He said daddies don't just love their children every now and then It's a love without end, amen And amen to that. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we've been listening to Tony Dolan the eulogy he gave to his father Joe on February 12, 2009, we asked him to read it for us, and we left off, and Joe had just lost his bride, his love of his life, and Tony takes it from here. It wasn't easy for him to leave and to go live in McLean, Virginia. 
He really missed my mother. He missed the hospital. But my sister, who's the heroine in all this, made him happy and gave him that quality of life people talk about. You won't be surprised to know the aides who helped take care of him took his death hard. But it was hardest for my sister, Maisel. She goes by his empty room. Jim Nussel, the former congressman who heads the Office of Management and Budget at the White House where my sister worked, stopped by her desk to express sympathy. Through tears, she said, the tough part is knowing that there isn't anyone on Earth anymore who thinks she's perfect. Not missing a beat, Director Nussel quickly said he thought she was perfect. I wonder if he knows how close to right he is. If you want to do something for my father or the family, thank my sister. Through the burdens and joys, she was something. But she's right about him, the way he felt about his kids. At the first Christmas dinner without my beloved brother, Terry, he wept. Got another lecture from my mother, which, of course, had less chance of succeeding than all the others. And here's how Tony Dolan closed out this eulogy to his father, Joe. Since we were children, we called him by his first name to the horror of many of our friends, though we tried to explain that Joe, to us, sounded just like Dad to them. But while his children deeply respected him, and I'll tell you more of why in a second, for all of that, he was also something out of Charles Dickens, one of those endearing figures, coming home from college or our jobs for the holidays. We so looked forward to seeing him. He was our Joe Gargery, our, our tiny Tim's protective father. Our most dependable ally, our oldest friend. Life and time and circumstances being what they are. Someday, it may be 50 or 100 years, change will come to St. Vincent. And in the lobby, they will take down those pictures of Jim and John and Joe. I've thought about that sometimes and realized that by then, the person taking them down may wonder about the man in those frames. Well, I know what I want that person to know about my father that he's the man his son was always trying to catch up to, especially the night he died. His vital signs, which had plunged earlier, seemed to have stabilized in the ER. But the nurse kept trying to get a blood pressure, and she couldn't. We didn't realize what was happening. What my father did next was what I remember, and brought to mind, forgive me, another parallel, another speaking of English novelist, literary one. Even Waugh is considered by many the best of the 20th century novelists, Brideshead revisited as his masterpiece. At its end, Lord Marchmain comes back to his great house to die in the family he had deserted. Hopes for some sign of a return to the church. With all the mastery of the artist he was, Waugh describes a deathbed scene in which the semi-conscious Marchmain dramatically, tellingly, makes the sign of the cross. Joe Dolan needed no novelist art. No contrivance of genius for his drama. My father, as they tried to get his vital signs, gave them the most important one of all. Slowly, solemnly, he raised a hand and made a perfect sign of the cross. A few minutes later, in a rush of doctors and nurses into the room, and he was gone. A better drama, I think, than Mr. Waugh's. The perfect playing out of the plot line. All that has gone before, what's expected of good or high drama. Because unlike poor Marshmain, Joe Dolan had always been there, ever generous to his wife and children, his church, his neighbor. In all that, he'd been strong, manly, dignified, really, living by his code of helping and loving others. So such a good ending, so believable. The man in the picture in St. Vincent's lobby, then, 
That's who he was. The man I was always trying to catch up to. A man I know that even now is waiting for me, kindly, affectionately. Lord, let thy servant now go in peace. Thy word has been fulfilled, and Lord, help me catch up to him someday. Wow. Not much not much to say after that, folks. He was the man I was always trying to catch up to. And that sign of the cross. A life well lived. And thank you, Tony, for doing that. I know why now you had such difficulty reading it, because I'm tearing up here listening to it. So thanks for doing that for us, Tony. And now I want to play something from Steph Curry. And we're going to skip around here to some of the best material we've brought to you over the past eight or nine months. Steph Curry was given the MVP in 2015, and before the world he gave a speech that was just so memorable. And here's the portion of that speech. Steph talking about that father of his, former NBA star Del Curry. Pops, you're the example of what a true professional is on and off the court. You... I remember a lot of your career, um, and to be able to follow in your footsteps, it uh, it means a lot to me. This is special. Um, I'm really proud of you know what you were able to do in your career, and um, I don't take that for granted at all. A lot of people um, thought I had it easy with the pops playing, you know, in the NBA, but. It was, uh, it was a, I'll get to that part down the road, but it was an interesting journey. And um, just who you are, you, you made it okay for me to have a family at my age when I, when I started it and to know that um, you take care of your business, you know, you, you, you'll be all right. So, so thank you so much. And again, you're listening to another grown man cry, and you heard Tony Dolan holding it back. You're listening to me holding it back. And if you're listening, you're holding it back. And these are dads who had tremendous and powerful influence on their sons in the most blessed way, in the most beautiful way. They were good dads. And again, we're going to be getting to some tougher stories down the road because they're there too, folks. This story comes from Coach Saban, Crimson Tide, the Alabama football coach. Nick Saban, who has led his teams to five national championships, sat down with 60 Minutes to explore how it all happened. What was the source? And here's a portion we featured last year where Saban's attention to detail and focus began. Let's take a listen. So where did Nick learn all of this? Well, it turns out his dad, Nick Sr., who coached the Black Diamond Pop Warner football team in West Virginia, the small town where Nick grew up. Nick remembers those long, hard workouts of his dad and a particular hill near the old football field. It was like a three-level hill, and it's almost straight up. And we, we would line up at the bottom of that hill, and that was our conditioning. We'd have to sprint up that hill. And it was so dark, he couldn't tell whether you made it to the top. So there was a row of trees up there. You had to bring a leaf back to prove that you made it to the top. So Nick comes from West Virginia. His father's a Pop Warner coach. Turns out he grew up in a coal camp with just nine streets. His dad owned the local service station down the road. He started working there when he was 11, and that's where he learned, well, how to do things right. If we washed a car, 
when I worked for him at the service station. And it was not done exactly, perfectly, correctly. He would say, wash it again. And you had a fear, as I understand, of certain cars. <laughs> the navy blue ones and black ones were really hard to keep the streaks out of. A single streak, you had to do the whole car over again. Well, now we know where the attention to detail comes from. That's where it comes from. Nick Saban remembering his dad, Steph Curry remembering his, Tony Dolan remembering his, much more to come. This is Lee Habib, this is Our American Stories, Father's Day celebrated. This is our American story, celebrating Father's Day. And, well, sometimes there's not a father at the home. And we got Crystal, a young girl named Crystal, to read her essay about her 14 years of life without her father. Let's take a listen. I'm 14 years old, and my father left me when I learned to say daddy. Even though my father's not around, In my heart, he is always here. Every birthday and every Christmas, I cross my fingers in hopes that my father will come home. Has my wish come true? No, but I never quit looking and hoping. What really hurts is walking through the mall and seeing little girls with their fathers walking hand in hand. I can see how much he loves his little girl, but I can't see my father loving me as his little girl. I see my father a lot in my dreams, but never does he turn around. I call for him, but he just keeps walking away. I'd like to believe he misses me, but how could he miss a stranger? Every time I blow the candles out of my birthday cake, I wish the same wish that I have for the past 13 years. I wish that stranger would turn around and look at me. Maybe if he saw all the pain and suffering from living without him, in my eyes, he would become a part of my life. For now, all I can do is to wish and never give up hope, for hope is all I have to hold on to. Even though it's hard to say, my father means the world to me, and if I had the chance to tell him all of this, I would not change anything, but I would add a couple of I love yous. But I would add a couple of I love yous, and my goodness, if you're listening to this, if you're that dad, get home. And that's any dad, by the way, not just crystals. Any of you who are absent and you know who you are. And by the way, any of you who grew up with an absent father. I just, it's just tough. It's really tough. And hopefully you found that other dad, that stepdad or that other man who stepped in and filled in at least some father role for you. And now we want to get to a, just a beautiful story. And this comes from a column from the New York Times, and we did this story called Me, My Dad, and American Pharaoh, and let's go back in time and take a listen. The son and voice behind this piece, titled Me, My Dad, and American Pharaoh, is Gary Ginsburg. He's the communications chief over at Time Warner. And if you are unfamiliar with the name American Pharaoh, he is an American thoroughbred racehorse who won the Triple Crown and the Breeders' Club in 2015. In winning all four races, he became the first horse to win the, quote, Grand Slam of American horse racing. I'm a huge horse racing fan. Took my little girl to the opening meet at Santa Anita late past this December. Here's the story Gary wrote of his father, Irwin, in the New York Times. 
and they're into the stretch, and American Pharaoh makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong. Frosted is second with one eighth of a mile to go. American Pharaoh's got a two-lane lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole, and here it is. The 37-year wait is over. American Pharaoh is finally the one. American Pharaoh has won the Triple Crown. He did it. American Pharaoh has ended the 37-year drought to a deafening roar from the fans here at Belmont Park. When American Pharaoh crossed the finish line in Belmont Stakes on June 6, 2015, becoming the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years, I cried. After talking with friends who also watched the race, most of us men in our 50s and 60s, I discovered I was not alone. Many of us were overcome by emotion and, as it turns out, mostly for the same reason. We were thinking about our dads. For a generation of American men born during the Great Depression, racing was much more than a five-week diversion from the first Saturday in May to the first Saturday in June. It was an obsession. And the obsession was shared with us, their children, so that in many cases, horse racing came to define the relationship we had with our fathers and the little free time they had to share with us. For me and for so many of my friends Saturday, the one person with whom we all wanted to share this historic moment was no longer by our side. The joy and thrill of the race was tempered by a profound sadness. My dad, Erwin Ginsberg, has had four great passions in life. The law, tennis, his family, and thoroughbred racing, though not necessarily in that order. He developed his fascination with horses as a kid in Buffalo, during what was arguably the sport's heyday. Following the exploits of horses like War Admiral and Citation, between the ages of 7 and 18, he had already witnessed an astonishing five Triple Crown winners, and he was hooked. He wanted to make sure I got hooked, too. It's a beautiful Sunday, the one day of the week he didn't go into his law office, was race day. We'd pile into our Chrysler New Yorker and head from our home in Buffalo to the Fort Erie racetrack in Ontario. Once there, Dad would walk me through the intricacies of the racing form, speed ratings, past performances, class levels, before placing a series of exotic bets on the Phillies and mares traveling the hard-bitten southern Ontario race circuit. When he lost, which was more times than not, he'd angrily crumple the betting slips, ending up with a small mountain under his seat by the end of the day. That horse, named Secretariat, is the reason why one of the greatest crowds in horse racing history has turned out here at Belmont Park in New York to see a picture... But we were in front of our Zenith TV for the best race of all, the 1973 Belmont Stakes. Secretariat had already run the fastest Kentucky Derby and Preakness in history and came to the race of champions as the prohibitive favorite. For my dad, it represented the best chance to end a 25-year Triple Crown drought. 
My 11-year-old self sensed the moment's historic significance, so I brought my tape recorder. And you will see, and Secretariat being led, he is, number is two, but he goes into the number one post. Listening to that cassette today, I can hear the tension in my father's voice as the horses make their way to the starting gate. He yells at me to move away from the screen, though the race is still a minute from post. We're ready to go for this tremendous Belmont State. Then the race starts, and it quickly becomes a two-horse contest, with Secretariat pulling away after the half-mile pole. We're quiet at first, but the silence breaks when I shout, He's going to win! My father shushes me, and we both go quiet again until Secretariat rounds the final turn. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 length on the turn. Sam is dropping back. My father starts repeating, Oh my God, oh my God. But Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. While I'm unable to control my prepubescent excitement, I begin screaming again at the screen. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the triple crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. In the years that followed, we watched Seattle Slough and Affirm win their triple crowns and continued our Sunday traditions at the track. Eventually, with me adding to the mountain under our seats, thanks to my paper route earnings. Then I left Buffalo for college, law school, and life in New York, and another triple crown drought set in. A decade ago, my father found out he had Alzheimer's. His mom, dad, and brother had all had the disease. He had feared it his entire adult life, and now he was to suffer the same fate. He was forced into a retirement he never wanted. But his love of horses endured. Three summers running, I took him to the Saratoga race course until the betting became too complicated for him. But the Belmont still held a special place. Even as his brilliant mind declined, twice he managed to travel by himself from Buffalo to New York with hopes of witnessing one more triple crown alongside his son. And twice we were denied. Standing side by side, watching first Smarty Jones and then Big Brown lose in heartbreaking fashion, were among the happiest moments of my dad's retirement and of my adult life. Victor, you just won the Belmont Stakes and with it, ended the 37-year drought and got your first Triple Crown finally. Just after the Belmont this year, my face still flushed from crying, I called my mom in Buffalo to see if dad had watched. No, they hadn't watched the race. He wouldn't know a horse from a rabbit, she said. Instead, they were sitting at the table having dinner. My father oblivious that his 37-year wait for another Triple Crown winner was over. Well, you might not be able to feel how fast he's going, but I can feel how happy you are. Let's go to Kenny Rice. I started to cry all over again. And what a beautiful piece. And it just hits home with me. Uh, my dad took me to the track. I take my little girl. I took her to a to the Santa Anita opening meet December 26th in Los Angeles, the first of many times we'll go to Thoroughbred Racetracks together. Whatever your passion or hobby is that you can share with your son or daughter, dads, do it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, celebrating Father's Day. More after these messages. 
call my dad when I was five years old He took my mom out to a movie And for once I got to go A few months later I remember lying there in bed I overheard him pop the question And I prayed that she'd say yes And then all of a sudden Oh, it seems so strange to me How we went from something's missing to family Looking back, all I can say about All the things he did for me This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the entire duration of this show, Father's Day is celebrated. And we're going back and looking back on the files of some of our best stories. Good dads, bad dads, you name it. Next, our field correspondent, Alex Cortez's story with Pastor Chris Edmonds, paying tribute to his late father, Master Sergeant Roddy Edmonds, someone the world had not known until recently, when he was the first American awarded the honor of Righteous Among the Nations for Saving Jews During the Holocaust. Here's that report and Father's Day tribute. Chris never heard from his dad about his time in the Army and as a prisoner of war. I asked him several times as I got older, you know, tell me about your experience in in the Army. Tell me about, you, you were a POW, tell me about that. He just said, son, there's some things that are just too difficult to share, and so I'd just rather not. Only after his death would Chris hear from his father's fellow soldiers. He heard that his father was their hero. This is his story. He was um, part of the Battle of the Bulge. They had uh, shipped the, the men over. He was in the 106th Division, the 422nd Regiment. And they had shipped them over to replace men on the front lines. And they got there sometime in December. 1944. Take cover! Come on! Where's the cover? And on December 17th of 1944, that's when the uh, drive from Germany, the, the German forces began to move offensively against the, the American forces and the Allied forces. So it basically was, they were over, overwhelmed and overpowered because they didn't really expect it. It was kind of caught off by surprise. So. Uh, he was captured on December 19th. He, along with most of that regiment, the 422nd Regiment, were either captured or killed. All right, men, pull in! The Nazis put Master Sergeant Edmonds and the 1,275 soldiers he commanded into a camp, and then into a second camp called Stalignan A. In this particular district, the District 9 camps were camps that intentionally were segregating the Jewish GIs and sending them to uh, labor camps. And most of the men that went were sent to those camps did not survive. And of course, that was against the Geneva Convention. So when we get to that camp, my dad, because of his rank, becomes the senior commander of the camp. You know, according to testimony, he was the senior leader, the senior commander of the camp. The day following their arrival, as always, they're supposed to fall out. Out, out. Okay, set. They're coming in. 
Well, they got an, an announcement over the uh, loudspeaker system. They had loudspeakers in each of the barracks the night before, and they they asked that only the Jewish POWs fall out for the morning roll call. And Mr. Lester Tanner tells me that uh, immediately my dad said, we're not going to do that. And he sent orders to throughout the barracks to have all the men fall out the next morning. We're all in on it. And we're all in on it. And so the next morning, the, all, all the... The uh, soldiers of the POWs fell out, and there were approximately 1,275 men there, and they're all standing there before the barracks. And um, Lester says that the commandant came over to my dad and was furious, and he said, All of you can't be Jews. And then Mr. Paul Stern, who was also there standing close by, said, uh, My dad responded, We are all Jews here. Oh, so. And then the commandant, obviously still very angry that this American had the audacity to disobey an order. As I was saying... said, I'm asking you to command your Jewish men to step forward. And my dad's response was, you know, according to the Geneva Convention, all that's required is name, rank, and serial number. So that, again, infuriated the commandant. That he was a major. He pulled his gun out of his holster and pressed it into my dad's forehead and he said, you will have your Jewish men step forward immediately or I will shoot you on the spot. And um, Mr. Tanner said that my dad said, uh, Major, if you shoot, you will have to shoot us all because we know who you are and when we win this war, you will have to stand for war crimes. So Mr. Tanner said that the Major blanched and turned blood red and uh, what seemed like uh, a, a very long time, but it wasn't. He stuck his gun in his holster, turned, and walked away. And then they all went back into the barracks and cheered my father. It was a moment too difficult for Master Sergeant Edmonds to share with his family. But Chris also believes his humility had something to do with it. He wasn't one to brag. He wasn't one to go around and share stuff like that. Probably even today, if he were here, he'd be saying, what's the big deal? I just, I did what I was supposed to do. You know, I did what anybody else would do. And, um... I'm glad it worked out. You know, it's, he just would not think it's a big deal, but I think it's a big deal, and, and I'm so grateful that he did it. What drove Chris's dad as a human being? He was the real deal. He he lived by his faith in God, and uh, it's even mentioned in his diary. He he brought back two diaries from his time as a POW. In that, it's mentioned, you know, really how bad war is, and how much he wants to get back to where he can just serve God. Many would say you can in war, and that he did, in that extraordinary moment, and in more ordinary ones, but ones that surely provided great comfort to his men in such a great trial. He even had a list of religious services that they were trying to conduct during the, the time of their being imprisoned, and uh, he, he had Catholic written there, Protestant, Jewish, so evidently they tried to have some kind of religious services as well. Chris wanted to share this final thought about his dad's story. It's not just about dad and, and his story. Obviously, I'm so proud of what he did, but it's also the story of the men who stepped forward as well. Every one of those 1,275 men who stepped out had a choice, and they, and they made the right choice as well. That's the power of one man's leadership, a leader we can all be each and every day. For Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. And that's just some great work, Alex, and the whole team here at Our American Stories does such great work. Father's Day stories, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, it's Father's Day, and we're going, we're going back into the files to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this is a tough story, one we did a while back. And it's a past conversation with Reginald Dwayne Betts, who was in prison and is now an acclaimed poet and the author of a book, Bastards of the Reagan Era. And by bastards, he means it literally, children of the 80s who grew up without fathers and father figures. Let's take a listen. You know, on the subject of fatherhood, I wanted to play a clip of you reading from your new book, Bastards of the Reagan Era. It's a poem called Prophets of Rage. Let's take a listen, Dwayne. This dance we do, it borders on insane. We all have names we let bravado mask. Think cash is clay, becoming Ali. Blameless debt we paid a human gal on shame. That's why Raymond became Ray Ray. Why Charles became Big Slim, then Chucky, Porkchop, Black. Not Charles, nah, never Charles, always in search of room, escape, a way to run and claim the blocks that buried us, launched us on this, a flight from freedom. But I digress. We were all running down demons with our chest out, fists squeezed the hammers, and I was like them, unwilling to admit one thing. On some days, I just needed my father. On some days, I just needed my father. You know, you talk beautifully about your mom, but talk about that. That last sentence. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I, I didn't understand what fatherhood was in a real way until I had sons. You know, I think I really just wanted to, in that line, and, and again, that line is not necessarily just about my life, but in that line is trying to own this idea that something, sometimes what you hunger for is, is to be able to rap with your pops. You know, sometimes what you hunger for is to be able to get wisdom and advice and, and maybe absurdity from the man that they helped bring you into the world. So um, I didn't understand that for a long time. In fact, I argued with people about whether that line should be in the poem because it seemed like if it was cast in blame and instead of thinking about the systemic problem, it was trying to put the onus on, like the absence of one father. And I was like, sometimes two things just have to exist at one time. And I think I've gotten profound joy um, out of being a father. You know, as frustrating as it's often been, it's always been more than that. I've always, you know, I got to walk to, uh, you know, Lake Michigan today with my son. And I think that that was just a beautiful experience that means something. And, and I think that it's hard to sort of place value in that. And I think that it's dangerous to ignore the fact that that means something. And now here's a story of a father who was there for his son and for so many other boys in the nearby town of Tupelo, Mississippi, we broadcast from a small town, Oxford, Mississippi, just an hour south of Memphis. This is the story of Brooks Eason and his dad. Our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, recently met a Jackson gentleman, the aforementioned Brooks, at an airport. They'd never met before. And the conversation went to Brooks's dad and what he meant to him. 
What he said was so moving that we actually asked this total stranger to share his final thoughts on his dad. And here's what Brooks sent us. I grew up in Tupelo, Mississippi, best known as the birthplace of Elvis Presley. I learned my love for camping from my father, Paul Eason, the finest man I've ever known. Daddy also grew up in Tupelo. He started college at Ole Miss in 1939. After Pearl Harbor, he increased his workload so he could finish early and join the Naval Air Corps. He graduated in December 1942, a semester before the rest of his class. By the time Daddy finished flight school and got his wings, the air war in the Pacific was in high gear. He wanted to go, but the Navy brass had other plans. Daddy had done too well in flight school. He was assigned to be a flight instructor to teach others who were bound for the Pacific. Daddy protested and made his wishes known, but to no avail. He stayed behind, never leaving the States. After he was discharged in 1946, Daddy took advantage of the GI Bill and returned to college for one more semester, the one he'd missed, and one more football season. During the week before the game between Ole Miss and arch rival Mississippi State, Daddy and several other veterans printed antagonistic leaflets to drop on the Mississippi State campus. Six of them drove the 50 miles to Tupelo, rented three planes, and flew south to Starkville. In their first pass over the school, the three planes complied with FAA altitude requirements. But it was a windy day, and the first drop of leaflets scattered widely. Most did not even land on the campus. For their second pass, the planes swooped low, ignoring the rules. The pilot in the lead plane, who had flown a P-47 over Europe in the war, flew so low his passenger later said he'd looked up and seen the top of the school's flagpole. The leaflets were dropped successfully and the planes flew back to Tupelo. Daddy and his friends returned to Oxford, their mission accomplished. Several weeks later, when Daddy was again home in Tupelo, he was confronted by an excited airport official demanding to know where they had gone in the three planes. Unbeknownst to Daddy and his friends, one of the planes had bullet holes in it. There was but one explanation. Veterans of the war were also taking advantage of the GI Bill at Mississippi State. When the enemy planes flew past their dorms, at least one of them opened fire. After his one semester at Ole Miss, Daddy returned to Tupelo, where he lived a life of unsurpassed civic commitment and community service. When he was a boy himself growing up in the Depression, Daddy was a member of Boy Scout Troop 12. He earned scouting's highest rank, the Eagle, in 1939. Shortly after he moved back home after the war, Troop 12 found itself in need of a new scoutmaster. Daddy was young and single and had time on his hands. In 1947, at the age of 25, he became the leader of the troop. Four decades later, Daddy told me he had thought he would take a turn at the helm for a few years and then hand over the reins to someone new. He had not imagined just how long his turn would be. Daddy served as the head scoutmaster of Troop 12 for 45 years until he turned 70. For another 15 years after that, he served as one of the assistant scoutmasters, continuing to attend meetings and camp with the troop. Daddy married my mother in 1950, three years after he became the troop leader. His scouts acted as if they had veto rights. They had to give his fiancée their stamp of approval before the wedding could take place. In 1951, some of the boys in the troop pointed out to Daddy what he already knew, that camping was the very best part of scouting. Ken Kirk, 
the troop's senior patrol leader and a future professional football player, suggested the troop should go on a camp out every month. Daddy agreed, and during that summer, a tradition was born. Troop 12 began going on an overnight camping trip every month without fail. Since then, in blizzards and thunderstorms and bitter cold and stifling heat, Troop 12 has never missed a month, not since Harry Truman was president. In March of 1993, the troop went on its 500th consecutive camp out. Former troop members who lived all over the country returned to celebrate and camp together at Camp Yakana, the Boy Scout camp 30 miles west of Tupelo. Among those present were men and boys who had become Eagle Scouts under Daddy's leadership over the course of six decades. After I got back to Jackson, I wrote Daddy a letter to thank him for teaching me to love the outdoors and to love camping and to tell him that he was my hero. He still is and always will be. Though accurate records apparently don't exist, it is almost certain that more boys became Eagle Scouts under Daddy's leadership than that of any other Scoutmaster in the history of the Boy Scouts of America. When Daddy earned his Eagle Award in 1939, he became only the fifth Troop 12 Eagle Scout. I was the 125th in 1972. There have now been more than 400. Troop 12 went on its 600th consecutive monthly camp out. 50 years without a miss in the summer of 2001 and on its 700th in the fall of 2009. Daddy and I camped with the troop at the 600th. We didn't camp at the 700th, which was the weekend after Daddy turned 88, but we went to the banquet honoring the milestone. One of the younger boys in the troop was asked at the camp out to identify the father of scouting. The correct answer was Lord Baden-Powell. The boy's answer was Paul Eason. Two years later, when Daddy turned 90, he was given the key to the city of Tupelo, and a resolution honoring him was presented on the floor of the United States House of Representatives. Daddy died on July the 1st, 2013, four months before his 92nd birthday. On the second weekend of January 2014, Troop 12 went camping for the 750th month in a row. The troop had t-shirts printed with Daddy's picture on the front and back. I got one for everybody in my family and my sister's family, and I wear mine often. Not surprisingly, my first memories of camping are the result of Daddy's involvement in scouting, but they are of camping trips I was too young to attend. I remember watching Daddy pack his backpack, preparing for a trip to one of the many places around Tupelo where the troop camped. When he came home at the end of the weekend, he would pick me up and rub his whiskers on the back of my neck. I would inhale the wonderful, mysterious smell of campfire smoke, a smell I still love. I couldn't wait until I was old enough to go. This is Our American Stories. Two great stories, two very different stories about dads and the lack thereof. More on Father's Day after these messages. And this is our American stories, and we're celebrating Father's Day, and we're celebrating some, well, some good stories mostly. 
a couple of bad ones because, my goodness, there are so many people listening who simply didn't have fathers who were present, so many daughters, so many sons. And hopefully for all of you who did have dads like that, either because they were negligent, because they walked away, or because they died. I mean, so many people I know, I know several who lost fathers in tragic car accidents, in other, in other sad and tragic ways. And we're celebrating fathers. And we recently talked with Wayne Bisbee, who runs the world's largest fishing tournament, Bisbee's Black and Blue Marlin Tournament, and it's in Cabo, a place where my bride and I honeymooned after our, our wedding uh, almost 12 years ago. It wasn't always that way that this was a big event. It was started with his dad and six boats and was more of an excuse to hang out to fish and drink in Cabo than anything else, these guys from Southern California. Here is Wayne on his dad and his character and what the success of that tournament enabled him to do. That goes way back to starting with my dad's days, you know, and it's something that, you know, the community was small back then. He was part of it or we were part of it. You know, we were just kids, but, uh, you know, we all grew up down there as a second home to us and everything from the, you know, up until the 90s. Gosh, the, there wasn't a radio in that town that the policemen, you know, used that my dad didn't supply to the first ambulance in town my dad bought because there was no ambulance in town. Um, and it just goes on, you know. I mean, I give my dad a ton of credit for his heart's always been you know, to the other people first and him last kind of thing, all the way through family, us kids too. I mean, we never wanted for something, you know, and whether we could afford it or not, he had us on the front burner versus himself. And, uh, you know, it's just the kind of guy he is. I know it sounds kind of cliche-ish or whatever, but it's true. And, uh, you know, if there was a hurricane down there, he was the first guy running parts and running, you know, uh, uh, materials, whatever you you know they needed down there, you yep. know to to help them recover from the hurricanes and things. And next is just well a classic, and it comes from a column that we came across. And we love to do this on our American stories, folks. We love and we find a great piece of writing to just call up that author and have him read what he wrote. Why bother interviewing? Why bother mucking it up? Let's just hear his words unfettered. And this one had to do with fishing just like the last one, and about a father and a son who were reconnected because of a son's generosity and ultimately a father's generosity. And now it's time for rediscovering my old man and the sea. In the Wall Street Journal, not long ago, the really great writer Keith Blanchard, well, he had a fishing story that he wrote for the journal that was really, really a great father-son story. We gave him a buzz asked him to record it for us, and here it is right now, Keith's story about a trip he took to Mexico to catch fish with Pop. Among the most beautiful words in the English language are certainly home and family. Bacon is a contender, too, in some circles. But to sports fishermen, no words are more beautiful than fish on, an adrenaline-fueled exclamation that they shout across the back of a boat when something has at last found its way to their hooks. I've been deep-sea fishing since I was too small to remember. My dad, my grandfather, and I would steam out at least a couple of times each summer from Barnegat on the Jersey Shore in my grandfather's 40-foot fishing boat, Sea Doll. My grandfather was always on the hunt for a trophy sailfish, back when the sea was still thick with such things. 
and he and my father had fished all the way out on the continental shelf for years, staying overnight and sleeping in shifts so they wouldn't be run down by freighters. But when I came along, they stayed responsibly closer to shore, hunting striped bass and settling, sometimes, for the much-maligned Atlantic bluefish. These were all sea monsters to the preteen version of me, with their slack jaws and unblinking eyes, flipping over and over on the deck and skidding and slip-sliding into the hold. I'll never forget the raw anticipation I felt when our boat slipped free from the dock in the early morning when it was still dark, foam churning behind us to the thrum of the motor as we pushed North America away behind us. But kids grow up, and life moves on. My grandfather passed away, his boat was sold, and over time I kind of lost touch with both my old man and the sea. And so, decades later, right around the time I turned 40, I decided to stop thinking about it and to organize a father-son fishing trip. It took my dad about three seconds to say yes. And what would we fish for? Well, the ocean is filled with wonders. But deep-water fishermen all share one bucket list catch, the marlin, king of the sea. And so my dad and I, with my good friend Roddy, an experienced marlin hunter, found ourselves motoring out past the chalky crags of Baja California's Pacific coast, 3,000 miles and a world away from New Jersey's Barnegat Bay, on the first day of a three-day fishing trip. Out of the ghostly marina at dawn and into the cold, dewy air of the Pacific. With the ceremonial first beer a little later, we drank a toast to my grandfather, and Roddy gave us the brief. A cross between a shark, a unicorn, and a freight train, marlins often weigh more than 200 pounds, though some monsters are much heavier, and can swim as fast as a car, leaping majestically out of the water when trying to throw a hook. And they're Neptune's own serial killers, eating anything they can smack and stun with that bone-hard bill. They're also smart and worthy opponents that work hard to stay out of your boat, thrashing and slicing at your line with their bills, even fouling your lines by swimming under the hull. Hauling one can take an hour, sometimes much more, of focused work. Your job is to keep that rod bent, reeling in the line when the fish will let you. A few hours in, we lucked out. Fish on! My dad slid into the fighting chair, set the pole, and started winding away. At several points, I jokingly offered to take a shift, but he just growled and continued his determined struggle, ultimately reeling in a nice one, 160 pounds and almost 7 feet long from the tip of the bill to the fork in its tail. We took our proof of triumph photos and released the fish to help keep the population healthy. Later, we celebrated at a bar, where I became acquainted with the awkward feeling of drinking with one's father while busty waitresses wearing Pancho Villa-style shot glass bandoliers trot around pushing drinks. I was ready to hook my own trophy, but the second day was more like a nature cruise than a fishing expedition. We saw dolphins and sea turtles and two whales that surfaced together right in front of our boat. Our only fish-on moment came when Roddy hooked a hump-headed bottle-green mahi-mahi. Back to shore we went to eat our humble, delicious catch of the day. Our third and last day broke cold and overcast. Good fishing weather. The hours ticked by with all of us staring hopefully at the end of the rods, but we just couldn't will that telltale bounce into being. By the time we turned for home, I was at peace with it. A bad day's fishing is still better than a good day at work, right? Then suddenly, just as we were about to pull up the lines, fish on! I scrambled into the chair and focused hard while my proud dad snapped photos like a maniac. And then the sharks arrived circling the boat in anticipation of what we were about to reel in. Sharks love marlin, especially when humans have helpfully hooked them. The boat's crew bravely, or was it insanely, leaned over the stern and smacked one away with a bat and pulled another out of the way with the hook of a long-handled gaff. My muscles were in agony and my reeling hand blistered up. I was functioning on pure adrenaline, feeling every inch a soft and pudgy city kid. At one point, my prize leapt out of the water and flashed me those beautiful stripes. Would this marlin be that coveted middle line for my tombstone? Born, caught marlin, died, or the dreaded one that got away. 
Today, my Marlin, a fiberglass replica of it actually, hangs on my office wall. My dad's replica hangs in his house. Mine was slightly smaller than his, as he will remind you again and again if you let him. Every time that giant memento inspires questions and I get to tell my story, our story, I picture my dad doing the same thing, and it brings a smile. A bad day of fishing beats a good day at work, but a good day of fishing beats almost anything at all. This is Lee Habib, two great father-son fishing stories, and we heard a horse racing story, and my goodness, we heard some tough stories, one from Crystal and another from an inmate who, well, never had the dad that he'd always wanted, and so many don't. When we come back, we'll close out with a few more of our best, celebrating Father's Day here on Our American Stories. stories and if Bruce Springsteen built his career on just one subject it was the way he wrote about fathers and sons and I can say that about Arthur Miller too half of his work fathers and sons the difficulties of those relationships the joys the hardships and Bruce particularly wrote about the hardships and that's what drew people to his shows for all those years and still I believe and to Arthur Miller's plays and we're celebrating fathers mostly good stories but some tough ones This one is a dandy. It's a beauty. Our next clip is about the late Massachusetts State Trooper Thomas Clardy, a father of seven children who was killed in the line of duty. We brought you his story during National Police Week and brought you the eulogy his friend, retired police sergeant Al Tony, delivered at his funeral, a eulogy where he delivered tributes from all seven of Clardy's children. Sergeant Tony saved the best one for last. From Trooper Clardy's 17-year-old son, Tyler, who, much to all the funeral's delight, brought a laugh and a smile to everyone's face as he divulged the secret moments he long shared and treasured with his dad. 
Tyler says to me in 2007, he was nine years old. His father came, they had a birthday party for him. His father came to him and father says, come with me, son. His father took him out. He says, where are we going? They went to the show, pulled up to the theater and went to the show. Tom turned to Tyler and he said, it's about time, son. I'm going to take you to your first R-rated movie. <laughs> Excuse me, go ahead. Um, the summer before, Tyler states also that the summer before his um, senior year in high school, um, he was turned 17. He says his dad came home. It was like any other day. His dad came home, and his dad said, son, come with me. They went out to the backyard, made a fire in the fire pit. Tom put two chairs around the fire pit. Tyler says they sat there for three hours. They made hot dogs and hamburgers, just the two of them. And Tom talked to Tyler about life. Not only did Tom talk about Tyler, tell Tyler about life, Tom told Tyler what he expected of him in life. That's a father. That's a father that cares. You bet. You bet. Spending the time, but also setting some expectations. Just beautiful. And hearing those accents, and by the way, hearing our American stories, unlike, let's say, National Public Radio or the BBC, we don't hide accents. We love the accents of the American people. And that Boston accent, that Irish, that Irish thing, that Southie Boston thing, we love it. We love it. Next up, Magic Johnson. In our first Job Friday series, we featured the NBA Hall of Famer talking about his first job. It was also a tribute to his dad. Let's take a listen. I was blessed to have uh, both my parents who instilled their values in me and always push all of us in terms of education and also that anything in life we were going to get or receive, we had to work very hard for it. And they set the example. I saw my dad go to work for General Motors 30 years. My mother worked for the school cafeteria. So when you come from a family of 10, six sisters, three brothers, and you wanted to do something like go to the movies, you already knew the answer was going to be no. So coming from Michigan, it snowed a lot. So my dad said, I'm going to help you, though, even though I said no, I'm going to help you get the money so that you can go to the movie. There's the shovel, the rake, and the lawnmower. Go at it. So I went door to door and knocking on people's door. Uh, I was praying for snowstorms all the time. (laughs) And uh, sure enough, in Michigan, we got a lot of them. And so I used to dig people out of their driveways. I used to shovel of snow, and then also during the fall, rake leaves, and of course in the summer, cut people's lawns. My father had another job, which was a trash hauling service, so we used to go by people's homes and pick up their trash. And um, this is what really turned my life around, this lesson here. So I would only work with him in the wintertime on Saturdays because I had to go to school. But on that Saturday, it was like a snow blizzard, and it was, must have been 10 below zero in, in, in Lansing, Michigan. My job was to get outside the, outside the barrels and pick up all the loose trash. 
And so this day was so cold that I picked up just enough, threw it on the trash truck, and ran back in and jumped in the cabin. By the time I closed the door, he had grabbed me, <laughs> drug me back through the snow, and said, Irvin, if you do this job halfway, you're going to practice basketball halfway. You're going to do your, your homework halfway. He said, you have to do every job better than anybody else. So, so I became a perfectionist after that day. So everything I did after that was at the best level, highest level, and I owe all of that to my dad. So now, as I'm playing basketball, I became a perfectionist. I wanted to do everything the right way. And as a father, I want to be a father the right way, on and on and on. So I thank my dad for every life lesson. I, I, even today, he's my number one hero. You know, I admire him. I look up to him. And the only reason I'm sitting here today is because of both my mom and dad. I have her smile. <laughs> and so I want to save the world like her. And I'm, I'm, I'm tough and strong and a workaholic like my father. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories. We bring you these stories that you otherwise would not hear. Look, I study basketball. I love basketball. It's my favorite sport, and I played it all my life, and Magic's one of my heroes. I did not know that story. And my goodness, his dad works at that GM plant and in his spare time runs a trash hauling business. And my goodness, his tribute to his dad, uh, proof of the impact of a loving father on a son. And my, my goodness, we heard so many stories through the year of the impact of an absent father, and it's devastating. And we heard it over and over again when we were doing some of our prison stories. In fact, it was the same story almost every time. I had no dad. I fell in with some bad guys. I ended up in jail. And so for all of you listening, we are celebrating Father's Day here on Our American Stories. And the good, the bad, and the ugly, mostly the good we want to do, because that's what we try and do is lift your spirits here on Our American Stories. But we don't walk around with rose colored glasses for all of you who did not have that loving father uh, well you know hopefully you found that that other person stepdads if you're listening thank you for doing what you do and playing the role of father in a in a boy and a girl's life and we wanted to close things out with a man who became father to so many and it's a remarkable story go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to the whole hour one of our heroes here on this show and in this network, Chuck Colson. And he's a man who had risen up to the heights of power in the White House, only to fall from grace. And it's Chuck Colson. And he ended up doing all of this remarkable work when he ended up in prison, doing this prison ministry work and saving lives. And here's Emily Colson eulogizing her father, Chuck. Let's take a listen. My name is Emily Colson, and I am very blessed to be Chuck Colson's daughter. Today we celebrate a life well lived. I am thankful to be old enough to have known my father before he became a Christian, and to see the change, the transformation in my father when Christ ruled in his heart. 
My father still had the same intellect and drive and passion for life, but a softness came over him. I think about my dad's office in his home in Florida, the desk, highly polished, where he worked tirelessly. And I think about the overstuffed green chair in the corner where every morning he would kneel and pray. I think of the three by five cards my, my dad carried in his pocket underneath his jacket. There were 15 or 20 of them there, an ever-growing to-do list. But in that list, he also had names, people that he prayed for every day. My dad became, as scripture says, a new creation. And he loved his family differently. And there you hear it. And from a daughter, that's how we'll close things out. Because my goodness, the impact of fathers on their little girls. Not enough's written about it. Meg Meeker writes about it beautifully. This is Lee Habib. Chuck Colson's Life Celebrated. A great father, among so many other things. This is Our American Story, celebrating Father's Day. Mm-hmm.